First of all, leggings can't actually go viral. Maybe the picture of them went viral, but leggings themselves can be worn on legs. God, no Target spared today. <laughs> <laughs> leggings, Schindler's List, we're coming for all of you. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And Tablet Editor-at-Large, Leah Leibowitz. 10 days of the Omer down, 39 to go. Another year, another missed opportunity for me to Omerize my household. Today on the show, we're bringing you a conversation with four-time Unorthodox guest, journalist A.J. Jacobs, who's joining us to talk about his new book, The Puzzler, One Man's Quest to Solve the Most Baffling Puzzles Ever, From Crosswords to Jigsaws to the Meaning of Life. Turns out that the meaning of life is a rebus puzzle, so it's like actually like (laughs) an annoying image thing. It really is. And also, a special mini-interview with famed director Barry Levinson, who has a new movie out on HBO and has movies you've seen, like Good Morning Vietnam and Diner and Liberty Heights and lots of others. And yeah, we scored that interview too. And then another little bonus segment for Yom HaShoah. So stay tuned for the whole episode. But first, the Yom HaShoah treat you didn't even know you needed. <laughs> but first, Stephanie Butnick, happy chametz to you. Yeah, it's great to return to the world of carbs. Um, something I didn't leave behind was the world of television, which I'm very into right now. Big on that old TV box. Are either of you watching We Crashed? I am not watching We Crashed because I'm still... Holding out on that Apple TV account? Yeah. <laughs> I was. You're waiting for a listener to give you their Apple TV login. <laughs> waiting for a listener, my mom or dad. No, we crashed. Is that about WeWork? So I'm not watching it because, as you know, and as some listeners of the show might know as well, uh, I am friendly with with Adam and Rebecca Newman. I genuinely think they're they're terrific, terrific people. But I bet Stephanie, but I think that you're going to comment on one or two things. It's either, <laughs> okay, okay. It is either Jared Leto's hair or more likely. <laughs> Is the Israeli accent? <laughs> okay, so We Crash tells the story of WeWork, which was founded by this Israeli guy, Adam Newman. And I saw a trailer for We Crash, and I saw Jared Leto doing like a stilted Israeli accent. And I was like, I think this is offensive. I was like, that's an offensive <laughs> accent. And then I sat down to watch the show, and 30 seconds in, I was like, this guy's incredible. He is so fully inhabiting the character of an Israeli. And like, I don't know much about the real person, so I don't actually, I've never like, heard him talk, but I'm like, I was literally watching being like, this is the best. Exactly. The future of work looks different. It veers into farcical, but you kind of get it. It works so well. And then I was like, is this actually offensive? And then I was like, no, it's only offensive if like being Israeli is offensive. (laughs) It's like kibbutz face. It's amazing. It's like falafel face. It's falafel face. (laughs) I think it's second only to to the absolutely over-the-top, ridiculous Italian accent that Jared Leto put on for House of Gucci, which, if you haven't watched... Never confuse shit with cioccolato. They may look the same, but the taste, very different. It's like, it's me, Mr. Gucci. <laughs> he can do it all. Jared Leto wasn't, he was Jordan Catalano on My So-Called Life, right? Correct. And then he was also Prefontaine in the, the the greatest cross-country movie of all time, except maybe Juno. There are very few good cross-country movies, but I know them all. And he's had a really interesting career. I'm not sure he's a good actor, but he's a movie star, which is more important than being good. And I, you know what? I'm going to watch this. I'm sold. You I have will, to watch will... it. He literally says, you know SoftBank? <laughs> which is like a deep cut of the end. But anyway, it's so good. He calls his wife Bob Ganoush. It's the funniest thing. It's it's it's, it's worth it alone because it reminds me of Liel. <laughs> it reminds me of the version of Israeli that Liel tries to play. Like, it's not Lomo? himself. Yeah, right. Maze billion dollars. It's basically like, <laughs> if you are a person with a strong Israeli accent, when someone plays you in the inevitable movie, uh, movie depiction of your life, that's what they're going to sound like. And Liel, I kept thinking about like, what if there was a movie of you? Oh, fuck. If I ever like, get famous. Who would be? Yeah. No, like, listen, if, if I ever get famous, famous. I, I'm, I'm going to write it into the Hollywood clause that it has to be. I have to be portrayed by someone who's willing to put on like an over the top. Like, I have to sound like this. Oh, the old movie. It's Christian Bale. It's Christian Bale. Yes, yeah, because Christian, Christian Bale. Bale he will, Method he acting. Will, he will gain 200 pounds for heavy set Liel. <laughs> he will lose it all for marathoner Liel. He will do the accent. He'll go deep cut. Like, deep cut I kosher. Mean, he'll, yeah. 
this show has just been like, it's so entertaining to watch because I'm like, this is our people. While you were binging on television, I was going fully analog because this Shabbos was not only the last day of Pesach, it was also the internationally renowned Jewish holiday of Yom Ha Record Store or Record Store Day, which being very observant, I observe wholeheartedly. So on Motzei Shabbos, I had one of my proudest moments. I took Hudson with me. Hudson is almost nine to the record store. Uh, and we were spending the, the weekend with, with my in-laws in Wilmington. And the record store down there, Squeezebox Records, is freaking, I mean, it is a record store. Mark Oppenheimer, I thought of you because it's everything. It's like a big converted garage. It's the guys oh with the beards and the attitude and everything. They see Hudson and they're like, oh, uh, kid, uh, what are you into? Like uh, Taylor Swift? And Hudson, without missing a beat, looks at him and says, nah, Steely Dan. Nice. nice. I was like, you know what? I'm done. My, my parenting is complete. I have taught this boy everything he needs to know. That's it. That's it. Straight straight to the rabbinate from here. He's like, uh, do you have the early Japanese pressing of Pretzel Logic? And they're like, yeah, we do. Mark, we have to ask, like, what's going on at your house right now? It's not the best of times. Before we get into that, I do want to back up. And while we're on Yared Leto, um, <laughs> We did promise ourselves that we were going to watch Licorice Pizza and we're going to talk about it with the J Crew. So I, is, next week, are we on for next week? We will all- We're on. Next week. Okay. We're all going to go stream it. The J Crew is going to go stream it. And that is what we'll do in my house because we have lots of time on our hands because four-sevenths of uh, Mishpuchat Oppenheimer has been COVID smacked. I'm on day eight or something or nine. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm back to- as you can hear, I'm in full mellifluous baritone, which I was not three days ago. So that happened. And then the other thing that happened, fortunately, I was mended enough that I could go teach my last class ever because I have uh, left the employ of my alma mater here in New Haven. And in August, my, I officially, I draw my last paycheck. Never quit an academic job in June. You might as well get paid through the summer when nothing happens. But that was, you know, I mean, I've talked to you guys about this. I don't know that the listeners know this, but I've been a college teacher for 15 or so years now. And, um, and now I'm just going to be, I'm going to be a freelance writer and podcaster. I'm going to be I'm going to be hanging out at the vinyl shop in New Haven at Elm City Sounds so much of the time. So okay, the thing that would worry me is that you've been in close proximity to the young, the youth. You've been able to like keep tabs on like what's cool, what's not, who's saying what. Like are you worried that you're going to lose that connection to like youth culture? Stephanie, I put I put that one back in your court. Do you feel that having taught 19-year-olds for the past 15 years has kept me really in touch with youth culture. When you think of people in their 40s who really know, like, the lingo on the streets. Hey, guys, you want to go listen to Todd the Wet Sprocket on the Sony Walkman? That flip phone you have is pretty cool. No, maybe that's why you're so averse to, like, the, the hip young things. Well, my shtick is entirely that I'm frozen in time, that I'm 47 playing a 77-year-old. I think they think that's fine. I mean— Well, because to them, you're 77. I mean, to them, you're 77, Stephanie. There are no differences. That's not really the issue. It's also, you know, honestly, it's that I'm excited to be working on this next book. I'm excited to be producing our, our secret new podcast project, our limited series in the fall that we're going to be talking more about soon. So it is true that while on the one hand, it's um, it's mildly terrifying to be halving my income, <laughs> I will be doubling my, my joie de vivre and esprit, and I'll figure out a way for my children to subsist on joie de vivre. I mean, it's, I heard it's delicious. Esprit. I also think like retired person is a designation that fits you so well. I love that for you. I mean, you have the corduroy, you have the pipe. I'm listening to my Wilford Brimley tapes. <laughs> Insofar as nobody, including my children, knows what I do for a living. And I always mumble some sort of mixture. Oh, I freelance and I write and I teach. And I, from now on, should I just say that I'm semi-retired and leave it at that? Not semi, yeah. fully. No, I'll just say semi-retired because then people will wonder what's the other half of him doing. Uh-huh. 
In News of the Jews, the post-Pesach world is rife with news from Liel's favorite country of Belgium. The child rape capital of the world. Low country with low morals, Belgium. But it's even better because this week, it's it's a Belgium twofer, it's a Schindler's List twofer, and it's a low country twofer because we get the Netherlands into it as well. Let me take the first one because it is actually delightful. A state-owned broadcaster in Belgium apologized for a video that parodies Steven Spielberg's classic Holocaust movie Schindler's List by dubbing alternative dialogue about an apparent cookie shortage over some of the film's footage. VRT, or Wurz, a public broadcaster which is owned and funded by the government of the Flemish region of Belgium, which I hear is the most anti-Semitic, on Monday said that it was removing the inappropriate April 7th video from its YouTube channel. It aimed to satirize reports in Belgian media about how the war in Ukraine could be causing shortages in the supply of the popular Centwaffel, uh, also known as the Waffel SS cookie brand. One character portraying a Jewish concentration camp prisoner is dubbed to say, I will do this in the appropriate traditional Belgian accent, God damn, that shit boy is gone with the last family pack of scent wafers about a character being led to Nazi gas chambers. Uh, so I read the story and for the first like eight paragraphs, I really wanted to make this a reason to love the Belgians because I think Schindler's List is such a morally reprehensible, atrocious film that anyone who parodies is already <laughs> better, better wow, than this, than this Fantasia. Take. I know none of, of us saw of, that coming. Of a Christian savior there to like rescue the I Jews. I think you mean wafer from their demise, <laughs> right? But then I read the, the the lines that they actually use. Like you couldn't do better than "Goddamn, that shit boy is gone with the last family peck of scent wafers." Like it, it reads like you know Grammarly wrote this. It reads like a, like an algorithm. You fail at everything, Belgium. This is my question about a country where this kind of thing is seen as funny. You wonder, is it just that they hate the Jews? But then it's like, they actually, they just think bigotry is okay, right? I mean, that that doesn't get done in America to any group. No one's doing YouTube. Belgium, let me show you how it's done. Ha ha ha. We are Nazis. We learned everything from how the Belgians treated black people in the Congo because they were the worst colonizers ever. See, that's that's humor, Belgium. Well, Schindler in the news this week because actually, and I, you know, we shouldn't talk. This is this is good old American capitalism. The headline reads: The e-commerce site Redbubble restricts Schindler's List design after leggings go viral. According to our good friends at the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, the online design marketplace Redbubble said it had quote restricted sales of a Schindler's List inspired design on its site after the Jewish Telegraphic Agency reported on a pair of leggings featuring characters from the movie that lit up the internet this week. Quote, the artwork referenced in this article has been restricted and we are adding additional monitoring measures as a result, said Red Buble, spokesperson Marissa Hermo. The leggings in question, which were first spotted at a Los Angeles thrift store, thus obscuring their providence, sported illustrations of characters from the 1993 Holocaust drama Schindler's List, along with an image of a train leading into Auschwitz. They were first posted to a popular Instagram page. There is some human being who thought of silk screening leggings with a train going into Auschwitz and then some Schindler's List characters. What's going on there? Is that just edginess? Are they? Did they think they were being edgy? Like, my leggings will slay you? So this is the weird thing. They're like mostly black and gray leggings. And then there's like the girl in the red coat appears several times. Uh-huh. So like, they're kind of interesting looking. Um, there's a big <laughs> ass picture of Liam Neeson's face as Oscar Schindler. And I feel like maybe they thought it was like a taken thing. Like, Listen to me. I have a very specific set of skills, like saving <laughs> thousands of Jews. <laughs> I, I don't I don't get it. By the way, I'm sorry. The Taken Schindler's List crossover is the movie I would actually freaking love to see. And it's it's actually a crossover. It's like a crossbody purse. It's it like it's, they sell them online. You know, here's the thing. This happens a, like this has happened before where these weird sites where you can upload like third party designs and like anyone can buy them. We've seen like weird Auschwitz stuff. So here's my question. Are there people who are actually buying this stuff or are there just like weirdos uploading it? Like, is there an actual market where people are buying? Like, Does one offend you more than the other? <laughs> I don't know. Part of me is like, 
kind of impressed if there's someone who like really wants that pillow. From the people who bought you Son of Soul pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some, but somehow some pair of the leggings ended up in a Los Angeles thrift store. I think, I bet somebody in the J Crew would have a theory of who's the, the person who finds this appealing. And by the way, it's not just leggings. According to this article, there were skirts, shower curtains, which I'm sorry, what? That's like a Yamakas. little on the nose. <laughs> um, this is weird. Who's buying this? Is it is it us? Are we the ones buying it? You know who's buying it? The Dutch, because heading back to the European lowlands, uh, Dutch carolers proudly announced that they're going to keep singing their anti-Semitic Easter song. Every year for at least a century, men from the Dutch city of Oortmansum have sung an Easter carol that features anti-Semitic lyrics. And despite protests by a Dutch rabbi, they have no intention of stopping. This also, of course, from JTA. The song about Jews, titled Christ is Resurrected. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was about Jews. <laughs> is part of an old 19th century tradition in Utmarsum, 80 miles east of Amsterdam. Everywhere in the Netherlands, by the way, is 80 miles east of Amsterdam. Uh, the locals call the traditional procession Flugeln. And in the procession, Dozens of men sing while walking along a set route several times a day on the first and second days of Easter. They sing a song about Jews that includes the line, the Jews who with their false counsel sacrificed Jesus on the cross. Catchy. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So poetic. The caroling is led by eight lead singers wearing... <laughs> wearing raincoats. The oldest of the eight men smokes a cigar and he is known as the group's treasurer and is nicknamed the Judas. Rabbi Lodi Vanderkamp. I love that in the Netherlands, even the rabbis have names that make them sound like the Uberstuhmenführer of the of the Waffen SS. Rabbi Lodi Vanderkamp, who was born in the east of the Netherlands, eighty miles from Amsterdam, called the tradition unfathomable, which is a stupid thing to call it since clearly he's fathoming it. But he made the point: "quote It is beyond me how the residents of Udmarsum can sing along to this, knowing the history of the city where four Jews were gunned down during the Holocaust." He said approached for a reaction. The lead singer, and I don't know if he's the cigar-smoking Judas or just the lead singer, Jan Veldpur, said he will not comment on the subject except to say, quote, we discussed it ad nauseum 40 years ago. We discussed it with the four Jews and then we shot them and now the case is closed. <laughs> so like back in the 80s, a rabbi complained. They told him to go fuck himself and they said case closed. Now these crazy Jews are raising the issue again, forgetting that the matter was settled 40 years ago when they told the last person to complain about it to go fuck himself. These Jews in the Netherlands, 80 miles east, east of Amsterdam, they never stop complaining about anti-Semitic processions. They just can't get enough. They just can't get enough. I have a question. Did anyone else realize that you could carol for things that were not Christmas? Be honest. Have you ever heard that phrase, Easter caroling? No. That's a very good question. Stephanie Butnick. Look, we learn new things. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Judas. You know what I think we should do? I, I think the only the only proper revenge is that we must now write our own carol. It should be a Shavuos carol about the city of Utmarzum. They make the best cheesecake. The best cheesecake. Well, also, we're going to then put those eight guys on leggings and we're going to wear them. Oh, yeah, yeah. Jaggings, actually. Judas is jaggings. Liel, if we're to do this, we're not going to pay for it. We're going to expense it. Like... Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. Will you close out News of the Jews with the most important item coming straight from Yerushalayim? What's going on in Israel? The Prime Minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett, elected, as you may recall, on a, hey, I'm totally not Bibi ticket, has released to show that he, unlike his predecessor, he's a man of the people, a commoner, not someone who indulges in luxuries and consumer goods. So he released his families' expenditure, all of which are billed back to the taxpayer. And I read, the family orders in its food from nearby restaurants, which comes to 24,000 shekels or $7,500 per month. Stephanie, how much uh, does your household... Uh, no, actually, let's do more because you know, the, the, there are six Bennetts. Uh, there are seven Oppenheimers. Uh, do you spend $7,500 a month on takeout? We spent, I can tell you, last night, $56 on our post-Pesach chametz modern abits, modern a pizza uh, from over on State Street, our family pizza order for uh, two pies and a garlic bread, no cheese. So that's 56. So you have $7,500 more <laughs> to go this month. There are months There are months when we do that twice. So let's call it 110. We may cross $200 in some months, but I, I should say- that a couple of the kids like eat tortellini and don't eat the takeout. 
So that's why. It's because all the Bennett's eat all the takeout. And the Oppenheimers, some of our, my kids are very picky and don't. I mean, look, in comparison, uh, the Netanyahu's did spend, according to the prime minister's office, $11,000 every month. On, and there are only three of them. Uh, so I, I guess the Bennett's do come out ahead in this comparison. But what the f*** is wrong with Israeli prime Like, do they not know that like food exists in supermarkets? Like, are they not aware of the concept of cooking? Can they, have they never seen like a pot? How did these people survive? By the way, when I'm listening to this thing about the Bennett family and their takeout orders, I'm like, is this Pride and Prejudice? It, it, like, basically, is this- <laughs> it is. I mean, there's a lot of them. Naftali, Naftali is Lizzie. <laughs> At the same time, isn't it kind of sweet? I'm, I'm not the only person who's hearing this thinking, oh, Israel, where the prime minister is like getting online with DoorDash. <laughs> like, what should we have tonight? Here in America... Think of the cost of running the White House, even when you have, you know, a president like Trump whose family didn't live with him or speak to him and Biden where the kids are grown. Even so, the overhead here in America for them to live like, you know, quasi monarchs is so ridiculous. In Israel, Bennett stayed in his house and just orders a lot of takeout and expenses it. That's a nice Hamish country. No, because for half that, you could hire like a full-time chef to come in like twice a day and prepare lunch and dinner (laughs) and go to the market for them and still end up, you know, $2,000 ahead. It's interesting because there's this is all that job creation. Their argument is like, we're not, we don't have the fancy chef. This is why. So like, we're basically not- what you're saying that Naftali Bennett's economic plan is to single-handedly keep the Ranana <laughs> restaurant market alive by calling in his own dinners. Yes. So this is all, this is economic development. This is job creation. People of Israel, I have a plan. On Thursday, I order this kosher sushi. <laughs> On a Friday for Shabbos, I order a Taco <laughs> Tuesday. A Yom Shlishi Shawarma is very good. What's amazing, Liel, is your Israeli accent now, after all these years in the country, is about as good as Yared Lezos. Yeah, <laughs> I'm hungry. So, J. Crew, you know how on Saturday Night Live, if you host five times, you're part of the five-time club and you get a red jacket? Our next guest is as close as we will ever get to that. He was a guest on the very first episode of Unorthodox. In fact, I dare say it's probably his greatest life achievement. He's also one of our absolute favorite people. He's the journalist and writer A.J. Jacobs. Arnold Jethro Jacobs. And now on his fourth appearance on the show, he joins us to talk about his new book, The Puzzler, one man's quest to solve the most baffling puzzles ever from crosswords to jigsaws to the meaning of life. And if you like the verdal, as the kids call it, or New York Times crossword puzzle or any other kind of head scratcher, have a listen. AJ Jacobs. First guest on the show, four-time guest. Oh, my God. One of my greatest accomplishments. We forgot to give you the jacket, but welcome back to Unorthodox. Thank you. I thought you didn't get it till five. Five seems like, so I'm I'm working on it. <laughs> it's actually 18 for us. Ah, good one. <laughs> but, but the gift is really, really good. The Puzzler, One Man's Quest to Solve the Most Baffling Puzzles Ever, from Crosswords to Jigsaws to the Meaning of Life. You write the best books, and Aww. I just really, really appreciate it. Welcome back. Yeah. Welcome back to the show. You make the best podcasts. How's that? You say that to everyone, don't you? <laughs> Only people who tell me I write the best books. So for someone who has not yet bought this book, what what's in it? What what is who Who is the puzzler? What is the puzzle? I am the puzzle, and it's about my lifelong obsession with puzzles. So it's got puzzle adventures. I went to... Uh, Uh, the Jigsaw Puzzle World Tournament in Spain, and I went to the headquarters of the CIA. But it's got the history of puzzles and why I think puzzles are so important, how little puzzles help us solve life's big puzzles. And it's got puzzles and a contest and all this and Jewish content, sort of tangentially. So hold on. Before we get to any of this and and to life's big questions, I want to talk about life's little schedules. I want a day in the life of A.J. Jacobs, which I think is a really great path into what the particular emotional obsession of this book is about. And and as the kids say, reading this book, I felt seen. So it's 9.58 p.m. on any given weekday. Where are you? 9.59 p.m., say. Wait, can I, I want to do that, but I actually want to start at the morning 
because <laughs> because when he describes his morning routine, which involves getting to a puzzle, he actually writes, and I'm paraphrasing here, I get up, brush my teeth, do my push-ups, and send a note to mom. And I wanted to I wanted to fact check this. Do you do push-ups <laughs> and write to your mom every morning? Well, I do with an asterisk. I do push-ups on the sink. Like whenever I go into the bathroom, I do them on the sink, which I, my kids make fun of me that that's old man push-ups, which I know it is, but it's better than nothing, right? So I just, I do my push-ups and then I send every morning a thank you note because I wrote a book about gratitude. I say what I'm grateful for today. And then she writes me back. So wait, is this a text? Is this an email? What is this? Well, I'm old, so it's an email uh, and she's older. So it's an email. Well, you know, Judaism is all about rituals. I always tie it back to Judaism for you guys. And I have my puzzle rituals, which is starts at night at 9.59. I am refreshing the browser on my computer because the New York Times crossword puzzle comes up at, it used to be 10.01. Now they moved it to 10. Because of people like us, because 10.01 was way too late, way too long to wait. Uh, I could not wait. I was so annoyed. Uh, So I do that. I do my Wordle. And by the way, I want to get to Liel's excellent analysis of Wordle as the uh, secular version of the town, the daily Talmud reading, which I think is brilliant. <laughs> Looking for meaning. And, and then you wake up sometimes in the middle of the night, maybe to go to the bathroom. It's, say, 4 a.m. It's 4 a.m. And I don't know if you know the spelling bee. That's the other New York Times. It's sort of an anagram, find the word. And... I don't know why they're sadists, but they put it up at 3 a.m. And, you know, I don't know what they're thinking. So for those of us who don't have newborns, we have other reasons to be up at 3 a.m., right? They've essentially created a a nightly feeding schedule. (laughs) And I appreciate it. I got to feed my puzzle instinct, my screaming, crying puzzle instinct. Yeah. So I do the the spelling. I look for the pangram, which is the seven letter word. And and when I wake up to go to the bathroom at 4 a.m. And then I do more puzzles in the morning. So it is, yeah, it marks the beginning and end of my day. Prostates and puzzles with AJ Jacobs. (laughs) AJ, I want to put you on the couch for a second. Uh, I I want you to take us through the emotional vicissitudes uh, of of solving. You you describe them at such length in the book and, and so beautifully. But it's a very complex set of human emotions, right? There's there's pride, there's you know pure animalistic dopamine hits, there's frustration, there's pain, there's doubt. What happens when you solve a puzzle, particularly a challenging one? Well, you just described it better than I could. I have all those emotions. Some people think puzzles are very intellectual and not emotional. I disagree. It is the feeling of accomplishment, the feeling of despair. When you see a puzzle and you feel like you're never going to be able to crack it, and then you just get that first one, and that's all you need is the toehold. One of the neat things in this book is you take us through, you know, there's there's a chapter on the Rubik's Cube. There's a chapter on crosswords, one on anagrams. Basically, you're a crossword guy. I feel like it started there, and then you kind of, you went out of your comfort zone a little bit for this. Is there a kind of puzzle that you did for the book that you thought, oh, actually, this one's really calling out to you. I'm going to incorporate this into my daily routine of push-ups and emailing mom and... 3 a.m. <laughs> tinkles. Like, what, what's the what's the thing you discovered you didn't know about yourself as a puzzle? Well, one of the biggest surprises is that is jigsaw puzzles, which I loathe. I want to try to convert you. Love them. Do you? I throw out my kids' jigsaw puzzles when they're not looking. <laughs> they're just a mess. <laughs> they no one actually. I don't think anyone actually enjoys them. They're just torture. Disagree. There are theories that it's a millennial thing. We'll see. I, I'm not sure. But yeah, I was very snobby. I thought that they were too broad and uh, sort of, I, I call them the, the Larry the Cable guy of puzzles, which is rude to Larry, rude to Jigsaws. But I, I was converted because I felt I had to study them for the book because they're almost the prototypical puzzle. And I was amazed how subtle and complex and satisfying they can be. And I ended up, uh, you might've read that chapter, I went to Spain as Team USA, representing my country in the World Jigsaw Puzzle Championships. And I humiliated our country. We came in second to last, but it was a wonderful experience. And I, I yeah, I recommend, I'm, I'm going to send you, Mark, I'm going to send you some jigsaws that might make you change your mind. Like these high-end woodcut, super tricky, Bill Gates loves Sure, but even your description for the competition was like, well, we have a team, you know, one person just does colors, the other just does edges. It's like, what are you guys like a construction crew? Like the Sandler and the the 
<laughs> well, yeah, that's the other thing. Jigsaws require some thought and strategy. You read this book uh, and, and you can't help thinking, maybe because you're me and you think that about pretty much everything, but you can't help thinking there's something deeply, 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 profoundly freaking Jewish about all of this. It's it's the mind that is given to play, which you find in gematria, right? The the practice of assigning letters, uh, numerical values, and sort of playing around with what each of their meanings mean and rearranging them. It's even the way the Talmud is written. It's not written sort of like, okay, well, now let me explain to you how things go down. It's like abbreviations and little shortcuts and little word games and like things like that. Does that come into the fore of of your thinking and solving as as, as you're writing this book? This, is this something that you stop to reflect on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are so many elements to this. First, I do think Judaism and puzzles, it's a deeply, as you say, Jewish pastime because it's all about curiosity and innovative thinking and looking beneath the surface. And the interrogative, I feel, is the most Jewish type of sentence. You know, it's like the four questions, why me, the uh, Seinfeld, you know, what is the deal with this? It's a very Jewish way to look at the world as a question. And that's sort of the heart of puzzles. And, uh, and there's a long history of first great Jewish puzzlers, puzzle makers and puzzlers, and also Jewish riddles, which we can get to if you want, uh, which are some are great and some not so great. Okay, yeah, let's get to Jewish riddles. Give us a great one. Well, they come in three varieties. So there's sort of the Yiddish folklore riddles, there's the Bibles riddles, and then there's the Talmudic riddles. So personally, I'm a fan of, of the Yiddish folklore riddles. So I'll start out with a food one. How many bagels can you eat on an empty stomach? How many bagels can you eat on an empty stomach? As many as you can fit on top of it. Oh, see, that's good. You're thinking like... Yeah, on an empty stomach. On an empty stomach. Out of the the stomach thinking. That's good, but totally incorrect. Uh, It is one, because after the first bagel, your stomach is no longer empty. (laughs) it's all about paying attention to the words which is you know very jewish all right there's this one which is is sort of a what's wrong with this picture riddle when the jews were in the desert joshua saw a man working on the sabbath on shabbat and he found out the man's name and wrote it down so that he could report to moses so what's wrong with that he wrote it down, wrote it down on, on the Sabbath. It's oh. a paradox. That's like one you give to the bar mitzvah boy, like the week before his bar mitzvah to see if he's really ready. <laughs> you know, like, and if he can nail that, he can go ahead and, he gets and have the his jigsaw puzzle. That's yeah, the Cobra Kai <laughs> version of, of Talmud. I have to say, I don't think Joshua comes off great in this because first he's writing and second he's kind of a snitch. He's snitching, yeah. <laughs> he's totally a snitch. This one is from the Talmud. I don't think you're I I don't think that you're going to be able to get it. If you do, I'll be super impressed. What animal has one voice when it's alive and seven voices when it's dead? Oh, I love these. Um it has one voice when it's alive and seven voices when it's dead. I don't know. A uh, sacrificial lamb? Well, that's very a... close. Very close. It actually is an ibis. An i this is the bird with a long curved beak. Because apparently you could make seven different musical instruments from the carcass. Oh, that is good. (laughs) Like a shofar joke. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah, you can make. Shofar, show good. (laughs) (laughs) I actually, it's a little, it's a little morbid, but I like the, I feel it is a Jewish joke because it's all about repurposing stuff. Like, you know, the Kleenex box, don't throw it away. You can make it a place to put your recipes. So AJ, there are so many things that I, that I absolutely loved uh, about this book, but the thing that I loved most about it is, is it's sort of assertion that sounds a little bit kind of strange, maybe even a bit ridiculous the first time you see it in sort of like the first two or three pages. But then the more you read, the more convinced you become that there's actually something to this, which is that puzzles and solving them is a great way, if not to save the world, at least to bring people close together. Uh, and and you see, uh, you know, and you read the book and you see you kind of interacting with all these puzzle makers and really understanding that the act of solving a puzzle is the act of trying to be in someone else's brain, right? And trying to see the world through someone else's eyes, which is like such a great way to, to empathize. D- did you feel your own kind of 
soul grow as you're sitting down with Peter Gordon, all these legendary puzzle makers, Will Shorts, of course, and sort of trying to kind of think through things the way they might have thought about them as they constructed these puzzles? Yeah, I love that. I mean, there are so many ways that I think it, it's good for you. One is getting inside someone else's head, but another is just the act of doing a puzzle together brings people uh, together. And Wordle, by the way, my book closed right before Wordle exploded. So I, <laughs> I begged Random House to open it back up so I could insert the word Wordle into the book. So so I could say, yeah, it's Wordle's in there. So it says, at night, I solve the crossword and Wordle. So Wordle's in there. But Wordle was an example of, you know, my Twitter feed is usually just vitriol and uninformed opinion. But then Wordle came and there were these weird little green and yellow boxes and people from all <laughs> over the political we're, spectrum could agree. We're all solving the same puzzle together every single day. That's I love right. that. But then there's actual research on this, like Cass Sunstein, but he did a, a research on what can bring people from the opposite sides of the political spectrum. And one of the only activities that brought people together was a crossword puzzle. So there is some legitimacy to this. And I do think what I call the puzzler mindset, seeing the world as a series of puzzles instead of a, a bunch of wars to fight is, is a good way to go through the world. So if I'm talking to someone from the other side of the political spectrum, instead of trying to win a, a debate of words and try, trying to crush them, I try to see it as a puzzle. What do we really disagree about? What, what can I say to him? What evidence can I pr uh, provide to him or her to change their mind? And what would change my mind? And then it's more of a cooperative puzzle. What, what can we do together? And it's much more, first of all, I find it more pleasant. Some people like debating. I find it more pleasant to solve this puzzle of, of what can we agree on and how do we get there? AJ, let me inject some, some darkness uh, into your <laughs> insufferable, good, cheer, optimism please and do. kindness please towards all, all man and living creatures. I'm, I'm a sort of a recovering puzzler myself. I, I, there was a period of, I think, like three or four years that I literally did not miss a day of, of the Times puzzle and, and grew fairly obsessive and, and uh, came to develop or at least be cognizant of something that you address in the book, which is the sort of pattern recognition mindset, right? This obsession over seeing everything then as a puzzle uh, and trying to find kind of, you know, literally the, the face of Jesus and a burnt toast or it's, it's a very kind of, it could get very conspiratorial, right? I mean, once you stop looking at or, or paying attention to or, or even believing in these sort of like random happenstance occurrences that are such a great big part of humanity, do you find that happening to you? Does that freak you out sometimes? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a double-edged sword because puzzles are all about pattern recognition. And that's what the best things in life are. Pattern, science is pattern recognition. But pattern recognition has a dark side. If you become attached to your belief in a certain pattern and refuse to switch, then that's where QAnon is a puzzle gone wrong. They found all these pieces that they insist fit together, even though they don't. Uh, that, so you've got to be very careful. And that's one of the big lessons is to hold your hypotheses very lightly. Like, ha hold your principles deeply, like principle, you know, be kind to others, golden rule. But hold hypotheses like that Democrats are all uh, pedophile cannibals, hold that pretty lightly <laughs> so that you can be convinced if you're presented with other. Uh, and that's how you solve puzzles too. Like, if you get stuck on a crossword and you're like, I swear, this is faceplant, uh, and it's actually flashback, and that was one that that stumped me for a while, uh, then uh, then you're not going to be a very good puzzle. AJ, there's also some other things we can learn from puzzles, specifically the New York Times crossword puzzle, and that is exactly how famous you are. <laughs> so how famous is AJ Jacobs based on the New York Times crossword puzzle? Please well, enlighten us. thank you for bringing that up. Yes, that is how I opened the book with that story, is that uh, a few years ago, I appeared as an answer to a clue in the New York Times crossword puzzle. It was author A.J. Blank, and the answer was me, A.J. Jacobs. And yeah, as a word nerd from way back, I thought this is the highlight of my life. My kids' births, my wedding, those pretty good. This is the holy grail. And I was on cloud nine. And then my brother-in-law, 
sent me an email pointing out correctly that I appeared in Saturday's New York Times. And if you know the, the New York Times crosswords, Monday is the easiest and it gets harder and harder. Saturday is the hardest, even harder than Sunday. So all the answers are totally obscure. So no one knows them. So his point was, this is not a compliment. This is proof that you are totally obscure. So then I sort of, yeah, yeah, dived into, I wouldn't say a depression, but I definitely put a, uh, a big asterisk on my happy day. And then I told the, uh, the story on a podcast and it happened that one of the New York Times crossword creators was listening and he did a mitzvah. He is Jewish. He did a mitzvah and he put me in a Tuesday crossword where I totally don't belong. Like Tuesday is for Lady Gaga and, and Biden. You know, I, I stuck out. He had to make the other clues super easy. Like, you know, what has whiskers and, and four paws. And, uh, you know, he had to make it super easy so that people could get my name. But it, it redeemed me. And I am forever grateful for Peter Gordon putting me in the Tuesday. I'm worried we haven't sold your book enough to our <laughs> listeners. And there actually is a puzzle inside with a big prize. So let's like, let's tell, tell them what it is. Thank tell you. them what they'll get inside. I would love to. Yeah. So you'll get the, the stories, but you'll also get hun- hundreds of historical puzzles and new puzzles. I have a, a great puzzle maker who made a bunch of new puzzles for the book. But in addition, in the introduction, there is a secret code. And if you can figure out the secret code, you can put it into a website, thepuzzlerbook.com, and it will open up into a, what they call a puzzle hunt. So a series of puzzles. And if you or, and your friends are the first to solve these series of puzzles, then you actually get real money. You get $10,000 from me, the puzzler. So I'm very excited for that. And, um, Oh, by the way, no, I have to say this or else the Random House lawyers will yell at me. Uh, you don't need to. You don't need to buy it. Uh, you can get the introduction for free online at thepuzzlerbook.com because otherwise it would be a lottery and I would go to jail. We'll, we'll keep you out of jail, but because I, I want you to come back on Unorthodox, I cannot even imagine what your next project is because all of your books are just... A year in jail for fraud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your year, you did your year of bi- living biblically. This is your year of living AJ, incarceratedly. Exactly. If you go to jail, I'll write to your mom every morning because you can't. How about that? <laughs> that would be very <laughs> nice. What about the push-ups? Will you do that? I, I, I will do those. When I read your meditation, on puzzle solving. Uh, there are moments in this book that I kind of, you know, spaced out for a second and thought, wait, am I reading kind of like a how to live life piece of advice? You talk about, you know, Rubik's Cube solving, for example, even crosswords. And it's, it's a lot of things like if you come across something difficult, step away for a second. You know, all, all these like little life tips. So give us the sort of the zen of crossword solving, crossword solving as, you know, balm for the soul. I love that. Yeah, I do think part of the book is sort of these life lessons that I learned from puzzles. And we've mentioned a couple of them. First, the meta one, see the world as a series of puzzles, uh, which is a much better way to go through life. Like if I hear about the climate puzzle, I, I want to solve it. If I hear about the climate crisis, I want to go in the corner in the fetal position. So that is just the, the meta one. But then there are all these strategies that apply to puzzles that also, I think, make your life better. Flexible thinking is huge. Um, finding the one point where you can get in. Having almost delusional optimism. I can solve this because if you don't have that delusional optimism, you're never going to be able to solve the really hard ones. Uh, don't uh, notice the uh, the grays. This one was literally from jigsaw puzzles because I, how do you solve a sky? Like skies drive me crazy. And one strategy is skies are not all blue. In, in most puzzles, there's light blue, there's dark blue, it's sort of shades. So look for the subtleties, look for the nuances. And I think that applies to all of life. Nothing is black and white. Nothing is all blue. Nothing is all blue. AJ Jacobs, <laughs> We love this book. We love you. Thank you. I love you. Thank you. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. 
Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a double header for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Mailbox. Two letters. One came in the old-fashioned typed way, the other voicemail. First, the typed letter. Good evening. This, <laughs> this, this listener writes, I guess we know that he was writing in the evening hours. Good evening. I would love to hear more about Liel's journey to keeping kosher. I started keeping kosher a few months ago and would love to hear his tips and difficulties. Sincerely, Zach Weinstein. Well, Zach, you may want to subscribe to Liel's Kosherous newsletter called Tips and Difficulties, My Kosherous Journey by Liel Leibovitz. But failing that, uh, we have him right here. Liel, talk to Zach Weinstein about your tips and difficulties of keeping kosher. You know, it's a tough question to answer because it, it assumes that there's a certain kind of inherent logic to keeping kosher. And frankly, I, I don't think that's the case. I started going down this path, not because of some rational decision-making process, but because of a feeling. It it felt like the right thing to do, like a practice that would deepen my own spiritual connection to a tradition that has kept our people together and strong for millennia. Look, you can contemplate reasons for all of these kosher decrees. Oh, pigs are inherently less sanitary animals, and therefore the rabbis back in the olden days wanted to keep us healthy and safe. Or, oh, this is all a program designed to keep Jews from fraternizing with non-Jews. But the truth is, you're going to come up empty-handed. The only thing you have worth anything on this journey is the feeling that something is turning in your heart and in your soul, that your ability to plug in, to plug into yourself, to plug into other Jews, to plug into Hashem is growing stronger. That's what you're managing here. And it's an endless process of fine tuning. Are you going to eat at a friend's house if he's serving kosher meal, but doesn't keep a kosher kitchen? Are you going to frequent non-kosher establishments at all? Are you going to observe a period of time between consuming dairy and eating meat? And if so, how long? These are incredible personal choices, but they're all pathways that lead exactly to the same place. Now look, I know how unhelpful I'm being here, so let me tell you a little bit about this place, or at least my perception of it. To go out to a restaurant with friends, To look at a menu that's chock full with dishes I used to absolutely love, like oysters, 
to take a moment to reflect that I have other values that overrule my base appetites, and then to say that I keep kosher and therefore will just have the salad, that's not only tremendously empowering, but also deeply clarifying. It tells me and it tells anyone else who's listening that I'm Jewish, that I love it, that I'm proud of it uncomplicatedly, and that I may not understand a lot about it, but that I'm doing the thing that Jews do. I'm eating like a Jew. I'm actually practicing Judaism, not reducing it to some abstraction that's interchangeable with every other feel-good intention on the planet. I'm doing the specific, particular, real thing. Doesn't make you a bad Jew if you don't. Doesn't make me a bad Jew because I have no problem walking into a non-kosher restaurant while people who are more religious, say, would only eat at kosher joints. But the feeling is undeniable. And brother, I hope you feel it very soon. From the heady and important to the utterly trivial but totally delightful, our listeners in the J Crew keep sending us their terms for their favorite Jew-Gentile mashup, like the half Indian, half Jewish person being called a Hindu, or the 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 one that started it all, the half Italian. My mom's Italian, my dad's Jewish. I'm a pizza bagel. These are of course done with love. They're coming from people in these communities. People who have these identities or are very close to them. And the train keeps rolling. And so we bring you this one from our voicemail line. Hi, Unorthodox. This is Monica. I have a friend named Kemi who may be listening. So, hey, girl, uh, who is Irish and Jewish. And she has the best mashup yet. She calls herself a Jupricon. Try and top that. Yeah, we dig that. We want to hear your thoughts, not just on this thread, but on whatever thread you want to start or anything we've said this week or any week. Email us at unorthodoxatabletmag.com or call us. Leave us a message, 914-570-4869. So this week, we mark Yom HaShoah, Holocaust, Remembrance Day. And over at HBO, the new film, The Survivor, is debuting. It tells the amazing story of a young Jewish man who was forced by his Nazi captors to participate in boxing matches in which Jewish prisoners were made to fight each other until one of them died. It's a harrowing movie about living with trauma and choosing hope over despair. I had a chance to sit down briefly with the film's director, the legendary Barry Levinson, the director behind such Hollywood classics as Good Morning Vietnam and Rain Man. Here is our conversation. The new film, The Survivor, tells the story of Harry, who was a champion boxer at Auschwitz and his life. One scene in particular struck me as a little bit different than the others. It, it has Harry falling asleep on the sofa in his own living room and being woken up by his son as he's screaming in terror when he has flashbacks of the horrible things he'd witnessed in the camps. Tell me a little bit about the scene. When I got the script, the first thing that popped into my head was when I was a young boy and I lived with my parents and my grandparents. And this man showed up at the door and it was my grandmother's brother. I didn't know she had a brother. I've never heard her mention her family, period. And, you know, they talked and whatever, and it was decided he was going to stay for a few weeks with us. And they put him in my bedroom. And uh, the first night I woke up because he was yelling and he was tossing and turning in the bed and he was speaking in a language I didn't understand. And then he fell back asleep. And it went on night after night after night after night. And then about two weeks later, he moved and there nothing was said about him. There was no discussions. And when I was around 16, my mother said, you know, when Simka was in a concentration camp and I went, what? And she said, <laughs> yeah, now the camps, and et cetera. And that was the first time I ever heard that. And I immediately flashed on. That's what those waking up in the middle of the night and those nightmares and the screaming must have been all about. And so when I read the script, I immediately thought of Simka and that experience. So ultimately, I put that in um, in the film. The movie is very much about, you know, Harry's attempt to cope with life and sort of like the, the terrible emotional burden of carrying those memories all these years. When you read the script, was there a moment that you went, this is just too hard to show. This is just too emotionally wrought. I, I don't want to touch this. Or on the contrary, did it sort of attract you because it was such a 
poignant, difficult, deep story to tell. That's the challenge. You've got to find a way to be able to tell the story and, and take the audience on that journey and um, understand a man sort of haunted by the past and trying to get on with his life and that struggle. You know, very little of the movie takes place in the camps. It's only, I think, 22 minutes of the film, I think. But it has to be strong enough that you understand why it, it stays with him. He's haunted. He cannot get past it. He can't enjoy day-to-day -day life because the past keeps intruding. And I thought that was a valid subject. I understand that prior to shooting, you and, and the cast and the crew spent a, an exorbitant amount of time both traveling to Auschwitz and, and also subsequently recreating a camp with consultation uh, with the, the USC Holocaust Studies Center in minute detail, right? So making sure that you got everything right. What does it feel like to walk around in a set that you know is a very historically accurate representation or reproduction rather of, of a death camp? You feel like you're stepping into to the past and into a frightening place. And there's no way that you're not affected by it, even though you're doing a reenactment, a reproduction of what something looked like. It gets to you in a way because you realize, I mean, there were these camps that were built, these factories, basically in their main purpose was to kill people. That you can't get away from. That you're reminded almost constantly every day that you're shooting in those camps. To be honest with you, we really did some of the tougher things right up front, right off the bat to sort of put that behind us as opposed to let that linger out there that at some point we're going to be doing those scenes. So we, we literally did a lot of that in the first week or so. We did some of the, the more difficult sequences. There's a, a wonderful scene in the movie in which Harry sits at a picnic table. He's training for his big, big fight against Rocky Marciano. And he sits there with uh, his Mexican trainer and also with a couple of African-American trainers and sparring partners. And they basically kind of start asking him about the Nazis and they seem perplexed. Like, I don't understand. Why did they hate you? Aren't you all white? I mean, I understand why they would hate us, but why did they hate you? Tell me a little bit about how that scene uh, came to be and, and what do you think it means in the context of America in 2022? I thought the film should have a sequence when they're basically going to have some lunch and just sort of something informal, but it's all wrapped around bigotry, anti-Semitism, and, and questions about God, but in a kind of easy fashion. You know, we kind of played around and just, and did something like it. You know, mixed into it, there's some lines like when Charlie uh, Goldman says, uh, you like that ham? And uh, Harry says, uh, that's okay. You know, God doesn't watch me that closely. Uh, <laughs> It's the way that he feels, you know what I mean? Because, you know, where was, where was God, you know, when, when he was in the camps and, and why was he in the camps? Did making this movie change anything about the way you perceive your own Jewish identity? To be honest, no, I don't think so. I still have the same questions uh, <laughs> and the questions that can't be answered. That stuff stays that way. But I think it's interesting to examine it and to look at it and try to figure out how these things continually happen through the history of mankind, that uh, bigotry and uh, racism is just sort of constantly rears its ugly head through the centuries. And so in some ways you wonder, how is that possible? And uh, you try to show in the course of the movie some of the wondrous aspects of mankind and the, the ugliness of mankind, and then trying to find how, how do you deal with things and how do you try to best have a, a fulfilling life? Sir, let me ask you one last question. This is a little bit off topic, but I'm just very, very curious because it's one of my absolute all-time favorite films that I watch, you know, repeatedly. I'm talking about Wag the Dog, which in recent years, especially since 2016, seems to have gone from an outlandish, hilarious, out-there comedy to something that's a little bit too close to home because it seems to have really sort of almost foretold uh, this bunch of fake news, mis- and disinformation reality that, that we live in. Yeah. Uh, do you feel the same way? Do you, do you go back and think about this and be like, oh, wow, that really kind of uh, aged scarily well? Look, you never know what's going to stick when you make a movie, you know, to be honest with you. And WAG ultimately, you know, did. And what's behind it is, was it, I think, inevitable. 
that there'll be a time when what is really truth, what is credible, and how can you continue to play with it until people don't know uh, reality from, from invention. And I think that's where we are. Those elements have now come, you know, unfortunately, to become part of the world we're in. What I'd say that that was going to come to that, I, I wouldn't have thought so quickly, that's for sure. <laughs> but it was inevitable. When you could start manipulating, and I think we're only seeing the beginnings of it, when you can man- manipulate so that you can't tell the difference between what is real and what has been manufactured, then you're, you're really screwing around with uh, perception and credibility and, and beliefs in general. And I think that's part of where we are now. We don't exactly know what to think and how much tampering has gone on uh, on any given subject. And on that happy note, Barry Levinson, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you. Hey, J. Crew, it's producer Josh Cross. Way back in the early days of the pandemic, we played you an optimistic song by singer-songwriter Avi Wisnia called Pass Over. Avi is the grandson of the late cantor David Wisnia, whose name may sound familiar if you remember a viral video that went around a few years ago about how a young David Wisnia kept himself alive in the Auschwitz concentration camp by singing to entertain his Nazi guards. Or maybe you remember David from the 2019 New York Times article entitled Lovers in Auschwitz Reunited 72 Years Later. David subsequently returned to Auschwitz to sing in early 2020. Sadly, David died this past June at the age of 94. With Yom HaShoah being commemorated this week, Avi is paying tribute to the music that saved his grandfather's life with a new documentary and never-before-seen footage of the two Wisnias performing together. With Avi on piano and Cantor David singing in Yiddish, Moishalach Shloimalach, is a melancholy song which depicts an empty, desolate land where once throngs of little Jewish children used to laugh and play. It's a testament to all that was lost during the Holocaust. You can hear more of the Wisnia's performance and watch the video now at mypolishwisnia.com. Moishalach Shloimalach. It's a very sad song, very short, telling the story that there is no more right after World War II. Moishalach, Schleimalach, little ones playing in Poland, how they all disappeared. And here it is. Spielen sich mehr nicht, kein Mäuselach, Schleimelach. Spielen sich mehr nicht, kein Zurlach, Leelach. Nicht auf kein Gräselach, nicht auf kein Schneelach. Hilchen sein mehr nicht, kein jüdische Stimme lach. Von dick und deisem lach, Mutter lach, Schimmel lach. Mit dieser Kräute zu droppet der Zur lach, von dem Babaisen Bunderim in Und der Dämonenblick 
dem groinem getroffene. Mazel Tovs. Liel, do you have a Mazel Tov this week? My Mazel Tov this week is for my friend and tablet contributor and world-renowned philosopher and activist Bernard-Henri Lévy. His new film, The Will to See, is honestly, guys, it's stunning. It's really this kind of brave look at the most urgent humanitarian crises around the world, which Bernard traveled to in person, often under fire. And even though it was shot before the beginning of the war in Ukraine, it has this really haunting section in it, which includes a conversation with President Vladimir Zelensky. It's playing this weekend in the Quad Cinema in New York and in Los Angeles and in Washington, D.C. If you can at all, check it out. Mazal tov, Bernard, and bon courage. Stephanie Butnick, uh, Mazel tov. Oh, Mazel tov. I guess I just have like a happy Yom HaShoah to all who observe. No Mazel tovs for me. I'm going somber today. And you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna go go quiet as well because I'm going to turn my mazel over to our listener from the J. Crew. She called us at the listener line, 914-570-4869. That's a thing you can do. And she did it. And she offers up this mazel tov. Hi, this is Telly Kellerstein, a listener from Toronto. I wanted to leave a big mazel tov today. Today was my relative Leonia's 60th birthday. And we have been waiting for a while, for three weeks, for him to turn 60 because Jonia is from uh, Kharkov in Ukraine, which is where my parents were from. And he needed to wait until his 60th birthday so that he could leave the country because men under 60 are uh, being conscripted to the army right now. His family refused to leave earlier without him. And we've all been waiting for today to arrive, for him to turn 60. And he is now on his way to uh, Lithuania. He is out of Ukraine and the family is safe. I don't know if he's going to hear this or if he listens to Unorthodox. I don't even know if he speaks English. Um, But um, we've been thinking about him all day and are so happy that he is, um, that he and the family are are, uh, safe. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, with Stephanie Butnick and Liel Leibowitz also hosting. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, and Quinn Waller. And our team includes Sara Fredman-Ader, Daron Rusquet, and Tanya Singer. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Also, we're still on Friendster and MySpace, so we got to get those spaces moving again. We need to inject some love into them. You can get our Unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Ruth Zlotnick at Temple Betham in Seattle, Washington. And we come to you from the IRL offices of Tablet Studios, where we are dusting off our desks, kicking back in our chairs, and getting back in the game. Happy Chameitz to all of you. Count that Omer. Shalom, friends. Liel has turned bright red. Something about tips and difficulties scratched him in a very special, pleasurable place. Oh, my Lord. Now I have to be, um, I have to be serious.